Well, I hope uh, what you see there encourages you. I want you to know and be reminded that that when you give your tithe here at Riverview Baptist Church, when you give every single Sunday, there's a a portion of that that is sent on uh, to our cooperative program, and it funds and provides um, support for things like you just saw. Um, The American Northwest in Canada is not an easy place to do ministry, uh, but it's neat to see this. Nowhere on the planet Earth is God held back. God is moving, God is working, God is saving people all over our planet. And so uh, I think that's something that we can rejoice in this morning. Well, today we're going to be in 1 John, as we have been. Uh, We'll continue to be working through 1 John. We'll be in 1 John chapter 3 this morning as we continue this series on a sure faith, a reliable faith. Last week, we looked at 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3, just three verses. But uh, that idea of, remember, behold... See what love the Father has lavished on us. We looked at how God's great love for us, God's enduring fatherly love, is what motivates us to live the Christian life. And that if we get that wrong, the message today that you're going to hear in many ways is not going to make a lot of sense. If we miss out that God's love is what fuels us, God's love is what gives us hope and energy and strength to live out the Christian life, then what we will be left with is our own human performance. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at this idea of not allowing lawlessness to coexist in our hearts. You see, there are certain things that cannot coexist together by their very natures. Certain things like peace and violence. You either have peace or you have violence. There is no middle ground. There is no, no place where they can coexist together. Peace and violence are mutually exclusive. Another one, life and death. A thing is either alive or it is not. There is no gray area. There is no middle way. Slavery and freedom. Either a man is free or on some level he is being subjected and held under some authority against his will. Again, there is no middle ground. And so we see that certain things by their very natures are mutually exclusive. In the same way, I would say that a sure faith and lawlessness cannot coexist together inside the same heart. When I say lawlessness, I'm not talking about um, a single breaking of God's law. I'm not talking about a single sin. No, instead, I'm talking about ongoing habitual rebellion against God. We're talking about this idea that I don't have regard for God's laws, for God's desires for me, or God's will in my life. I'm not interested in that. I want to live my own way. And so what we're saying then is that you will not find a Christian who enjoys living in rebellion to God. Why? Because you can't truly live in rebellion towards God and at the same time love God. Those things are mutually exclusive. It's not possible. So let's look at 1 John chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 4 through 10 together this morning. If you would, please go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's word today. 1 John chapter 3 verses 4 through 10. This is what the word of the Lord says. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 
By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy God, we thank you for this day. God, thank you for the privilege of gathering together as your people this morning. God, we pray that as your word is preached, God, as we hear it, that you would move, Father. We pray that you would be present in this place. God, we thank you that, that your word is powerful. God, that your word pierces our hearts. And so this morning we pray that our hearts would be sensitive and open to hear what you would have to say to us. God, help us to have the courage and the faith to not just hear your word, but God, to also be doers. We ask this in your name. Amen. And so John fourteen fifteen, Jesus said, If you love me, you will obey my commandments. No if, ands, or buts. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. You see, you may be able to find, I think, a true Christian who is, is struggling with sin, right? But I would submit to you that if you find a Christian who's struggling in sin, that what you'll experience in that person's life, what you'll actually find is that they're not at peace. They're not enjoying their sin. They're not having a good time. They're in the middle of a fight. They're in the middle of war inside of them, that they're working out a battle against their flesh. You might also be able to find a person who's living in rebellion to God uh, that claims to know Jesus Christ. But I would say this, their glad rebellion, their happy rebellion against the Lord demonstrates that they don't truly know God. You see, I think a lot of times when we're struggling against sin inside of a Christian's life, there's, there's a sense of kind of misery. There's a sense of, of uh, restlessness, a lack of peace that, that says, you know, kind of, woe is me. Why, why can't I get over this thing, Lord? Lord, help me to get past this issue that I'm struggling with. Why can't I get past this? And here's what I would say to you this morning, um, if that's you today, that hopefully this will be encouraging for you. Um, praise God for that. Praise God that there is conviction in your heart and in your life. You see, because here's the reality. If you were able to go into your room at night and lay your head on the pillow and fall fast asleep in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your rebellion to God, that's a sign that you don't really care about him. It's a sign that you don't really know him or desire to honor him with your life. And so thank God that you're miserable. Thank God that he's working in your heart and not allowing you to rest in your sin. And so we see... I want this morning to see three truths as to why faith and lawlessness cannot coexist together in the same heart, in the same life. Three truths. The truth, the first truth I would point you to this morning is that sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Look at verses four and five with me this morning. It says this, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him... There is no sin. You see, everyone who breaks the law is a lawbreaker, is lawless, and that is each and every one of us. So what's the big deal about breaking God's law? Why is this such a big deal? Well, the reality is is this. God is the author of right. He is the definer of wrong. He is the one who sets the standard for each and every life that exists on the planet. And God has created a natural moral law that exists in the world around us that is unchanging, that has always existed. God talks about um, in the Old Testament that there is a law that he provided to his people, but here's the reality. Paul tells us this, that that law actually existed on the hearts of men before they even had it. 
Why? Because God has created a natural law, a natural moral law that has always been there, that has always existed, that has always been right, and then when we break it, it is always wrong. So what's the big deal about breaking this law? Why is it that the punishment for this law is hell? Why is it that we are condemned for all eternity to be separated from God? I think at times we may look at that, and in fact, I've heard in my ethics classes, students say something like this to me. Isn't that a little harsh? Isn't that a little extreme? All eternity? What's the big deal? Well, I want us to stop and think for a minute together this morning. What is the big deal? I, I would say it's this. You see, when we conflate God's law with man's law, we get confused. When we conflate God's law with man's law, we get confused. God's law is not like man's law. You see, man's law... The laws of men are something like traffic laws. Traffic laws are, are, I think, a good example. Those laws say, hey, you have to stop at a stop sign or what? You'll get a ticket, right? You have to renew your license plates or you're going to get a fine. These are examples of men's laws. If you don't do these things, there are real consequences to breaking these laws. But the consequences can change. There could be a law that's passed tomorrow that says the punishment for those laws will be uh, less severe or more severe. In fact, the laws themselves can change. There was a time in the United States of America you didn't have to have a driver's license to drive an automobile. The laws themselves can change. But here's the deal. God's laws are different. God's laws are immutable. They are unchangeable. God's law is like fire. If you put your hand in a fire, what's going to happen? You get burned. No changes. No excuses. No exceptions. It's just it's what's going to happen. I think that helps us because here's the deal. Imagine that all of the United States uh, legislators gathered together in a room and they passed a law. They passed a new law. And the law was this, that no longer in the United States of America will any citizen of the United States ever be burned by fire again. They passed this law. And then you and I run outside and we go and stick our hands in a fire. What's going to happen? We're going to be disappointed, Right? We're going to find out that man's law is very different than God's law. Why? Because the law of the fire is not like the law of the traffic stop or the license plate. Bound up inside a fire itself and the nature of what it is to be fire is the penalty for using it wrongly. In the same way, the moral law of God is like the law of fire. God cannot reduce the penalty of sin because the penalty for breaking God's law is bound inside of the law itself. Here's what I mean. If you lie, guess what? You'll damage your relationships. It's guaranteed. It's going to happen. If you lust, guess what? You will look at someone who is made in the image of Almighty God, an image bearer of God, and you will look at them and treat them like an object. You will. You won't see them as a person. You won't treat them as a person. If you allow your heart to be filled with hatred and anger, guess what? Your heart will become bitter and calloused and cold. Inside of God's law is the very consequences that we find ourselves dealing with. And here's what God has said, friends. If you sin, you shall surely die. It's bound up inside the law to rebel. Listen, who is God? God is the author of life. He's the creator of all that we are, of everything that we have. And so guess what? If we rebel against that author of life, if we rebel against the creator God, what are we left with? We're left with death. To rebel against the author of life means that we die. And so a struggle exists inside of every heart, inside of every human heart. There is this struggle of lawlessness 
or faith. There's the struggle of, I'm going to trust me, and I'm going to live my way, and I'm going to do my plans, I'm going to accomplish my dreams and my goals and find my meaning and purpose in life, or I have to surrender. I can no longer live lawlessly. I have to now obey and follow the law of Jesus Christ and what he has said. This is the battle that rages. But for those of us that know Jesus, we have laid down our rebellion. We have laid down our lawlessness, and we have picked up faith. We've picked up a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I think this morning we have to start with this idea that sin truly is lawlessness. And then as we see that sin is lawlessness, to understand, I think, truth number two, that we cannot abide in Christ and simultaneously live in sin. We cannot abide in Christ and at the same time live in sin. Look at verses six through eight. Says this, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It's kind of a scary phrase. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Stop and think about that for just a moment. How many of us have sinned this week? How many of us have sinned since we've been saved? We keep on sinning. We keep on sinning. So what is John saying here? Is he saying that we have to be perfect? Do we have to be perfect to have a a living relationship with Jesus Christ? John 14, 23, Jesus said this. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. We will dwell and abide with him. So, how is it then that this abiding happens? How does this happen while we're still sinful, if we still fall short? Do we have to be perfect? I would say no. We do not have to be perfect. We don't have to to be literally perfect in this life to be saved. And here's how I know that. Where does that come from? Well, just... Leave your finger here and flip one page over to 1 John 1 8. 1 8. I want us to see this. John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So John is saying something here. He's saying we have to acknowledge our sin nature, but not keep on sinning. How is it then that we can be saved? I think. The, the tempting question might be to ask this, how much can I sin and still be saved? And here's what I would say. That's actually a bad question. That's a wrong question. Because at the end of the day, friends, our salvation is not dependent on our works. Our salvation is not dependent on how good we are. Praise God for that. That's good news, that you and I don't have to perform or reach a certain level to be good enough to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Because if we did, we would never make it. None of us would ever be that good. None of of us would ever be good enough. But look at verse 8, the last half of verse 8 in chapter 3. He says this, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So the very purpose of Jesus' coming to this earth, friends, was to crush sin. It was to kill sin on the cross and then to rise victorious for you and for me, for those of us that would come to a saving faith and place our hope in him and say, I'm not going to live for myself anymore, Jesus. I'm going to turn away from my sin. I'm going to trust in you and what you've done. I'm going to follow you the rest of my days. As we do that, 
We receive the power and righteousness of Jesus Christ. We receive and exchange our sin, our fallen, messed up selves, and we get his glorious goodness, his perfection given to you and to me. And so Jesus came to kill sin. And here's what you and I will do. If we know him, if we love him, Christian literally means little Christ, that we would become like him. And if Jesus came to kill sin, guess what? What are you and I supposed to do? We're supposed to kill sin in our lives, right? We're supposed to fight back against our sin natures. We're supposed to push this back. And so, no, I don't have to be perfect, but I do have to live a life of ongoing repentance day after day after day. This is the process, as Jesus describes it, as taking up our cross daily and following after him. When we take up our cross, that is a picture of, Something like, take up your electric chair and follow me. It's something that shocking. It's something that radical. It's saying, I'm not going to do what I want to do anymore. I'm going to pursue Jesus Christ. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to live his will. And so we have to deny ourselves. And I think here's the litmus test. Here's the way I would ask you this morning. No, we don't have to be perfect. But are you in a battle against your flesh? Are you in a, a war this morning? Are you gladly rebelling against God and his law? Are you indulging in your sin? Or have you decided, no, I'm going to push back against that. I'm going to fight against that. I don't want to live that way any longer. You see, every Christian, from the moment that we're saved until the moment we die, will be in a perpetual war against our sinful natures. Why? Because we will never be perfected in this life. We'll never reach a place of of sinlessness. John said it for us in verse 8 of chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, then the truth is not in us, right? And so there's a place and a time at which we will become perfect, but that's known as glorification. That's when we're in glory. Now on this earth, we are fighting. We are in a war. We are in a battle against our flesh, and that process that we engage in battle and we become more and more like Jesus is called sanctification, that we're trying to more and more, day in and day out, become a better reflection of who Jesus is in our lives. So making war against sin, you and I must engage in this battle. Paul calls it the battle of life in the Spirit versus life in the flesh. But we must engage in this battle. In every battle scenario, there are those who are taking new ground, right? There's those who are attacking and trying to take new ground. And then there's those who are defending and trying to hold the ground. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, which one are we as Christians? Which one are we called to be? Are we the attackers or are we those that are to hold the ground? The answer, I think at times, is both. The answer is both. At times, uh, we will engage this battle of sin, and some days we will have defensive positions, and there will be days where we have offensive positions, where we are pushing back the darkness, where we're taking new ground for the name of Jesus Christ. And I want to talk about what that looks like. I want to talk about what that looks like for just a minute. So first, this idea of taking new ground. What does it look like to proactively fight against sin in a way that pushes back the darkness? I would say, first off, there, there are, I think, two kind of tools that we can use. Number one, we need to renew our minds. You've heard me say this before. You'll hear me say it many, many, many times again. We must renew our minds if we're going to be the people that God calls us to be. Because as we think, so our desires will be stirred. And as our desires are stirred, eventually we will give in to those desires. 
And so if my mind is being renewed, if my mind is being refocused on Jesus regularly, it's going to help me desire him rather than the things around me in this world. And so I need to pray. I need to read scripture. I need to fast. I need to practice the spiritual disciplines in my life, not because I'm trying to perform, but because I want to be focused and filled with the Holy Spirit as I go through my life. And as I do that, I'm asking God day in and day out, Lord, please reshape my character to look like the character of Jesus. God, please work in my heart and change my heart in such a way that day after day I'm going through this process and I'm looking more and more like you, that I look more and more like your son. And as we do that, then I think we do this second step. We renew our minds and then we live by faith. That's very cliche sounding. That sounds, okay, Michael, you're not telling me anything new today. I I know that. I know that I'm supposed to live by faith. Here's what I want us to say, though. I want us to, to look and see. We know that we're supposed to live by faith, but how often do we actually, truly live by faith? Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we are those who walk by faith and not by sight. You see, the practical way to go through life, the normal operating procedure, the standard operating procedure for each and every one of us is to operate by sight. We've been given five senses, and one of the primary senses that we use each day, day in and day out, is our sight. And oftentimes, it is used to protect us. It is used to keep us safe. It is used to help us make good decisions. If I didn't have my sight, walking across the street would be a difficult thing. But here's the deal. God is telling you and me today that is not how it works in the spiritual world. That the spiritual world is bigger than our sight. That there's something happening each and every day as we walk through life that is stronger, that is more powerful than we are. And so we are to live by faith. Faith Faith-filled living, I believe, is this. Faith-filled living is the key to squelching a desire to sin in my life. Faith-filled, God-filled, spirit-filled living, obeying Jesus is one of the most powerful tools that we have to squelching a desire to sin inside of us. How is that possible? Why? It's because of this. If I'm focused on doing the things that God has given me to do, that God calls me to do, here's the reality, just very simply. I'm not going to have very much time to focus on me. If I'm focused on God and I'm doing the things he's called me to do, when I, hit my, when I lay my head on the pillow at night, I'm going to be worn out. I'm going to be tired because if I'm going and I'm sharing the gospel out there with my peers and coworkers, that's not easy work. If I'm making disciples and I'm taking time to actually find someone, perhaps in this room, to invest my life in outside of Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights, that's hard work. If I'm going and I'm loving the people that God has placed in my family, if I'm loving the people that God has placed around me at work extravagantly, not in a way that looks like the love of the world, if I'm loving my enemies, if I'm doing the things that that when I help someone, when I interact with my children, I allow it to cost me moment by moment by moment by moment. When I get to the end of my day, I'm not going to have much time to dwell on me because I've been spent but I've been spent in a beautiful and good way. I've been spent in a way that gives life. The illustration I would give you um, is this, that so we're not just taking the bad behavior of the sin and removing it and leaving a void. If we do that, what happens? We're going to look for something to fill that void back up with, right? The illustration I would give you is dieting, okay? 
dieting. Uh, research shows that changing your food habits is actually one of the hardest habits to break because we do it every single day. Most of us, three times a day. Some of us, even more than three times a day, right? And so this is not true of me, but just imagine with me for a moment that I have a problem. I like to eat Twinkies in the middle of the night. Again, that's not real, okay? But I like to eat Twinkies in the middle of the night. Just imagine this with me. And I could tell myself, okay, I'm going to stop eating Twinkies in the middle of the night. I'm no longer going to do that. But if I stay up until midnight and I don't have anything to replace that time with, I'm just up and I've got idle hands. And I start looking at the kitchen. Kind of ease over here. I'm going to go in the kitchen. I'm going to get a healthy snack. I'm going to get me an apple. I'll go over there first, and I'll get me an apple. And I pass the refrigerator on my way in. I grab the, the refrigerator. I look in there, shut the door, move to the pantry. Why? Because I still want the Twinkie. I haven't replaced. That Twinkie's going to taste a lot better than the apple. I haven't replaced it with something truly good. Here's a way that we can move past it. You see, instead of pursuing the Twinkie, instead of waiting up till midnight and allowing myself to face that temptation, perhaps a better, more constructive thing to do would just be go to bed, right? Go on and go to bed. And to actually be asleep in a way that when I wake up in the morning, I feel better than I would have if I would have stayed up till midnight anyway. And so I'm refreshed, I'm encouraged, and I've been able to be faithful. And now, friends, I've got some motivation to keep moving forward, right? Here's what happens. Here's what happens in our Christian lives. Look at Galatians 5. Hold your finger here and turn to Galatians 5 with me. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Galatians 5. I'll give you just a minute to turn there. Galatians 5. We'll read two verses, verse 16 and verse 17 this morning. Verse 16 and verse 17. Paul is writing to the church at Galatia, and he says this, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Stop there. Did you catch what Paul just said? Did you catch what he just said? He said that those two things, walking in the Spirit and walking in the flesh, are mutually exclusive. You're not going to do them at the same time. And so the best way to defend against the flesh, for those of us that are football fans out there, the best defense is a good offense. Meaning, don't give the other team the ball. Hold on to the ball as long as you possibly can, and there's not time for them to score. In the same way, if we are living for Jesus Christ, if we are filling ourselves with his spirit and we are going out and living a faith-filled, spirit-filled life, there is not time for the defense to score. I'm not going to want the Twinkie in the middle of the night because I got something better. This is what God calls us to. This is what we've been given. And so this is what I want us to just ask ourselves this morning. Is the majority of my day marked by walking by faith and not by sight. Is that true of me? That is one of the ways that we can fight against this idea of sin and win. And so this is the uh, offensive position. This is where we're taking new ground. This is how we're attacking sin in our lives. Now, I want us to see the defensive position because there are moments in every battle, 
when we're caught off guard, right? There are moments in every battle where somehow, some way, the enemy surprises us or sneaks up on us or catches us off balance. And so what are we going to do then? Then we have to, uh, to assume a defensive position. We have to fight back to hold the ground. And I want us to see what that looks like. So when I have chosen to stop living by faith, when I've chosen to start living by sight and I wasn't prepared, I wasn't ready, what do I do? Well, I think firstly and most importantly, it's very simple. We actually flee. We flee temptation. We don't dwell on it. We don't wait around with it. We get out of there. John Piper in one of his blogs uh, said this. He said that research shows, for, for those of us that struggle with lust, if you struggle with lust, you have five seconds to kill that sin. You have five seconds to decide in your heart or decide in your mind, I'm not going to think about this any longer. I'm going to move on. I'm going to find something better. I'm going to find something else to do. Or if you choose within five seconds to continue to keep thinking on that, to keep dwelling on that, you'll act. You'll fall. You'll give in. And so we have this reality, Galatians 5.1. Again, don't turn there, but that's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Galatians 5.1, the theme starts out like this. It was for freedom that Christ sets you free, brothers. Do not turn back then to a yoke of slavery. It was for freedom that Jesus set you free. Don't go back to slavery. Jesus said in John 8.34, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. There's an imagery here. And the image is this. It's the difference between slavery and freedom. That's one of the examples I used earlier. The picture is literally of the person who manages to escape slavery, to run and get away. And they're running through the field as fast as they can. Run, 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 run. And in the middle of their pursuit of freedom, they begin to stop and slow down and look back. They look back at the plantation, they look back at the thing, the place that they've been working, and they begin to turn, and they walk back towards their bad master. They walk back towards their chains. They walk back towards the tools of their slavery, and they pick them up again, and they put the chains on again, and they go back to work. They labor in bondage. This is the picture This is what Jesus is saying to us. This is what Paul is saying to us. When we don't flee temptation, when we choose not to run, it's just like going back and picking up our chains and willingly, gladly putting them back on and choosing to live under the bondage of sin in our lives. Who would do that? You see, either we are slaves or we are free. If you have received Christ, if you know Jesus Christ, if he dwells in you, you're free. You're not going to go back to that, at least not long term. You're not going to live in that bondage. You're not going to do that because you understand there's nothing, there's nothing here for me. There's no freedom found here. There's no life found inside of this. And so we see that we cannot abide in Christ and live in sin. The third truth this morning that we need to see is verses 9 and 10. The Holy Spirit, it's good news, the Holy Spirit will keep us from living in sin. So it's not just on you. It's not up to you to get you through. God gives us his Holy Spirit to empower us, to help us not turn back to that slavery, to that bondage. Look at uh, verses 9 and 10 with me this morning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. 
And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because, why? Look at verse 9. God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning. It's wonderful, good news. You see, there is a theology that's out there. There's a teaching that's out there that says, if you're not good enough, you can lose your faith. If you're not good enough, you'll lose your salvation. If you don't walk with Jesus up to this certain standard or this certain level, then, then you're not going to make the cut. You're going to have to fall from grace, and you're gonna actually going to have to pray for Jesus to save you again. But this is not what God's Word teaches us. This is not what God's Word teaches tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. Why? Because the Holy Spirit remains in us. He's there. He's not going anywhere. Praise God. As much as I mess up every day, thank God that he remains with me. Thank God that he endures with me, that he does not keep on looking at me and saying, I am sick of you and your failures. Thank God that he has grace upon grace upon grace. There are two reasons that a child of God will not continue in sin, according to this passage. Two reasons. Number one, the Holy Spirit, as I've already alluded to, is the one who empowers us. It's not us. It's Christ in us that is the hope of glory. And so Philippians 2.13, it says it this way, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working in us as the fuel to keep us going. God is working in you as the fuel to keep us moving forward in our Christian lives. And so just as we look at the illustration of a car, you think about a car. There is a moment at which if the car doesn't get refilled, it's going to give up. The car doesn't have the power and the energy to keep itself going contained inside of itself. In a similar way, you and I do not have the energy and the power to keep ourselves moving forward and following Jesus on our own. But we know an unending spring of life. We know living waters. We know the God who day after day after day says, come, be with me. Come, drink from me and find life everlasting. Find that your cisterns will run dry, but mine will never run out. Come, be filled. Drink again and again and again, this is the good God that we serve. And so we see it's not because we're going to perform. It's not because we're going to be good enough. But God in us is the fuel that enables us to press on when life is difficult, to press on even after we fail, to continue forward. The Holy Spirit empowers us. Secondly, the Holy Spirit keeps us. As I've already alluded to, he remains. He seals us. Go back to the concept of being a child of God from last week. We talked about what love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so we truly are. God loves you today, Christian, if you know Jesus Christ as a good father loves his child. He is faithful. He is true. His love for you is unending. And it is not based on your performance. It is not based on whether or not you get it all right. God doesn't just adopt us. I talked about that image of adoption. But what God does for us is actually deeper than adoption. God sends his Holy Spirit to abide in us. And so we literally become an irrevocable part of God's family. 
Look at the way that John describes it. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. God's seed, the seed of the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Said another way, perhaps in modern terms, we get the DNA of God. God's DNA dwells inside of every believer. And so listen to me, friends. You can change your friends. You can change your career. You can cut your hair. You can dye your skin. You can get all all kinds of different procedures done, but you cannot ever change your DNA. And friends, you cannot change your spiritual DNA. You don't have the power to do it. God, when you are saved at the moment of salvation, fuses his Holy Spirit into your life in such a way that it is binding and bonding and cannot be undone. And so the Holy Spirit of God keeps us and molds us and makes us into the people that he desires us to be. God himself is the keeper of your soul today. There are no sure hands that can guarantee your salvation. There are no sure hands that can carry you through this life. Will there be difficulties? Absolutely. Will there be hurts and sorrows that you must walk through? Yes, because we live in a fallen world. But the hands of a loving father, the hands who designed your DNA before the foundation of the world, the hands who knew you and made you, has given you his DNA and said you're good and you're mine and no one will snatch you from my hands. This is our hope. This is the joy that we have in Jesus Christ. And so I just want to close this morning by reading verse 10. I just want to close this morning by reading verse 10 together. John has actually made it shockingly simple. Startlingly simple. Look at verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. We're going to unpack that next week. I want us to focus on that first portion. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Hear me. Our works don't save us. Okay? Our works cannot save us. But our works can provide evidence as to who it is that we belong to. It provides evidence that we know the one who saves. And that is what John's talking about. Whoever practices righteousness is a child of God. I want to ask you this morning, who do your works say that you belong to today? When you look at your life, when you look at how you've lived over the past week, who do your works say that you belong to today? I'd ask you to bow your head. Every head bowed.